This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. As 2020 draws to a close, we here at Reuters Breaking Views would like to breathe a long sigh of relief. That was a rough one. But with vaccines on the way and the U.S. election out of the way, the world can look forward to an easier 2021. Or can it? Every year around this time, our columnists put their heads together and try to come up with predictions for what the year ahead might bring. I'm Pete Sweeney, and I'm here in Hong Kong with columnists Robin Mock and Jen Hughes. In this week's episode of Views Room, we are going to discuss what the future of the world looks like from Asia. Robin, you're our tech columnist. I want to start with you. The, the, the outbreak has had ramifications for a lot of industries, but one of the industries that has been most famously a beneficiary you know, of work from home and this this surge into video streaming and e-commerce and everything has been technology. And Asia, in Asia, a lot of companies have been positioned to exploit this quite well. There's been tons of movement in the space and investment. Um, can you just start off by kind of letting us know what your take is on, on how this is going to play out going forward? Yeah, sure, Pete. So like you said, tech has been, you know, one of the key beneficiaries of the pandemic with everyone just sort of stuck at home. So we're seeing, you know, in countries like China, um, where internet penetration is already high, um, e-commerce and video games, you know, that has, the pandemic has really helped uh, growth in those sectors. Um, But in less developed markets like Southeast Asia, for example, the impact of the pandemic looks actually, it's even more pronounced. Um, So we see a lot of trends that are just you know, happening really, really quickly now in terms of just e-commerce, uh, digital payments, uh, online groceries. So Southeast Asia is becoming, you know, a really, really fascinating and exciting place for tech investors and tech companies. Um, so a lot of the companies there, uh, so you've got, you know, Grab, which is the region's most valuable unicorn. It's ride hailing, it offers food delivery, fintech, everything. Um, they've just really, really benefited um, from all these emerging trends from the region. Yeah, and that's that's something we've seen in other markets. And there's been one interesting thing in your prediction was that you see a sort of environmental problem with some of this. And this this resonates with some other people I've said are just like you don't realize how much energy it requires to be running all these Zoom conferences and downloading and ordering and and whatevering. What's your take on on the environmental impact this is having? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because these are two very separate trends that, you know, I sort of see converging, um, you know, over the next year. The first is that you have the rise of ESG, so environmental, social and governance activism, you know, particularly from a lot of investors and shareholders. So you have big fund managers like BlackRock that are really just paying attention to a lot of environmental and social issues um, pertaining to lots of companies. And on the other hand, you have another trend of, like you said, work from home. So a lot of people now are just streaming Netflix and Spotify and playing online games, you know, way more now. Um, And when you have the two combined, then you sort of have to wonder what are the environmental implications and impact of all this uh, streaming and Netflix, Netflixing, you know, so then um, I took a look at, you know, a lot of the data centers um, and they're actually very energy intensive, like they consume a lot of electricity, um, you know, even though there has been, you know, a lot of technological advances um, in terms of how much energy they consume, um, you know, how much they 
that's bound to rise. Um, so right now, energy uh, data centers, they probably take up about 1% of total electricity consumption uh, transmission networks. So the cables that um, you know connect data centers to users, it's another 1%. So right now it's quite low, but that's definitely going to rise in the future. In, in your piece, you suggest that there's been this uh, efficiency improvements that like despite this explosion you know, in demand, that the industry has managed to hold its share of energy consumption fairly flat. So why can't they just keep on, on, on staying efficient? Well, I think the main reason is that sort of a lot of data center, the efficiency improvements are, they come from technological improvements. So you have server chips that are, you know, very powerful, they're smaller, they're a lot more energy efficient. Uh, a lot of companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft, uh, most of them switch to renewables. But a lot of that, you're hitting up against the limits, right? Um, so in terms of chips, for example, you're at the end of Moore's law, which means that you cannot make these chips, you know, that much more smaller and powerful and energy efficient anymore. So then you're bumping up against, you know, a lot of technological limits. Um, the second is that it's not just work from home trends. You also have, you know, the rise of artificial intelligence, uh, 5G. So in terms of just data usage and data consumption, that's going to just exponentially increase. And if the technology can't keep catching up with that, then it means that, you know, it's for sure like data, uh, data is going to consume more and more electricity and energy down the road. Well, yeah, it's interesting because some people have compa compared data, well, data, the new oil. Um, it might be that that metaphor might be apt in more ways than one. Okay, interesting. Jen, if I can pivot to you, we're we're all sitting here in Hong Kong, um, and this has been a city that's gone through a bit of a rocky patch, to put it mildly. You've been watching, you know, the financial markets here, the banks for for quite a while. What do you see happening next year in Hong Kong, um, in terms of the business environment, especially for the financial sector? Well, you're, you're not selling it short when you say it's been a really challenging period, because first, it's worth remembering, we had the protests which rocked the city, then we rolled straight into COVID. And this summer, we had the imposition of the national security law, which has unsettled or spooked people quite a bit. Um, that means 2021 is an important year in many, many respects to see just how strong and resilient the city is as a financial centre. So, for example, we've got the um, a change in chief executive at the Hong Kong Exchange. Now, that might not sound so much, but HKX, as it's known, the exchange, is part of the beating heart of finance in Hong Kong in a way that I would say it's not quite the same in London and it's not the same in New York. And actually, cash-wise, it's about the same size, the same value as the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or CME Group. So it's actually the world's jointly most valuable exchange. We've got a change in CEO there for the first time in 10 years. Uh, we've got you know, HSBC trying to push through and push forward with its plans to pivot more to Asia. It's headquartered in Hong Kong and it's had all sorts of problems with politics and other issues. HSBC real quick and then we can circle back to the exchange if you like. But um, I mean, your prediction was was quite interesting because you seem to be calling for an even deeper or more profound pivot back to Hong Kong, or more or less a, an amputation of, of its operations in, in the United States and maybe even United Kingdom, which seems like a, a hell of a thing to call for. Uh, is it that bad? Uh, I mean, I know they've had issues with the, the US government and, and Beijing isn't particularly pleased with them either. 
Yes and no, I'd say. I mean, a pivot to Asia has been a phrase we've heard of for the last three now chief executives from HSBC, because this is where the growth is and this is where the real future is for the business. It's the best returning, it's the fastest growing, uh, it's covering up the losses in other divisions a lot of the time. So what we wanted to suggest was you're trying to pivot to Asia and you're trying to move money from Europe and the US to Asia. Let's find ways of doing that more quickly. It's not cut off in China. HSBC has still got a strong business there. Yes, it's definitely had political issues and it's certainly not probably everybody's yeah, favorite bank. Yeah, I think a lot of on what happens to Meng Wanzhou of Huawei, right? Because HSBC is in a bit of trouble for cooperating with American investigators there. But, you know, if the U.S. ends up settling and there's been some sort of noise that that she'll be allowed to go home without jail time, then presumably that's good for HSBC. Well, the U.S. retail operations are already um, sort of under review. So that one's kind of on its way. They're cutting a third of the branches. We're saying go the whole hog, get rid of the branches. You can probably still keep the high net worth customers even without many branches. You just don't need them for that. These guys bank online and, you know, if they're rich enough and the bankers fly to them. So what we're saying there is go deeper than you're already doing. The UK spin-off would certainly be a more challenging culturally, politically, in all sorts of ways. It would be a more challenging thing to do. But it kind of makes sense. You've got all these deposits in the UK and they can only fund local business because it's ring fenced. So that money can't be used to fund the Asia operations. So why not spin off a minority? You still keep control. It's still your operation, but you free up some cash that you can move to Asia. It doesn't all have to go to China. Southeast Asia, to Robin's point earlier, is a really vibrant area. We're seeing a lot more interest from bankers in Southeast Asian businesses um, and banking people there as well, because we've got factories and other people coming out of China, different supply chains setting up. So it's not going to be just China, but Hong Kong is the headquarters for Asia. And so, yeah, that money would come through here first. Well, back to the exchange. I mean, we've been talking about how what a rough time, you know, Hong Kong has been having politically and economically. We're still in a recession. But I mean, the exchange I mean, has been doing pretty good business. I mean, you've got all that volatility trading and there's been huge IPOs activity, um, all this noise in the well, it's not noise in the US anymore. There's an actual law that's going to compel um, Chinese companies that don't comply with the PCAOB to delist. And that is seen as playing in in, uh, in Hong Kong's the HKX's direction. I mean, whoever comes in and replaces the outgoing CEO, Charles Lee, he or she is not going to be walking to exactly a disastrous situation, right? But the trick is going to be, I mean, I think your concern and others has been like, where does where does the exchange turn for the next phase of growth? Yes, I mean, absolutely. We need to look at that because Hong Kong is facing greater competitive threats from other exchanges. In Shanghai, you've got the Star Market, which is a Nasdaq-like tech board. Year and a half in operation, hoovering up money. Uh, companies flocking to list there. In Shenzhen, just across the border from us, we've got the Chinex, which is Shenzhen Exchange's equivalent, more or less, of the Star Market. They've just made their regulations more uh, listing friendly, more company friendly, less regulatory oversight and control of the speed. So both of those are going to emerge as threats for companies. A lot of companies listing there may never have come to Hong Kong, but there will be some that we're considering maybe NASDAQ um, or you know New York or Hong Kong are now saying, well, why should I go overseas? Why don't I just do it in China? 
much simpler. So what Hong Kong really needs to do is to, what the exchange needs to do is focus on doing what it does better. So it continues to be this gateway to China. It is at the moment. And I would say that threat isn't immediate, but I'd say that they really need to focus on that, make the exchange better. There's deals? a lot of I mean, antiquated I mean, technology. Sorry, I mean, just what, what about deals? We had this this move to, to acquire um, that um, hasn't gone anywhere. Um, do you yeah. think the acquisition route is just is is closed now? I think it is largely, if it isn't, it really should be. I mean, what they tried to do last year was that Charles tried, Charles Lee tried to buy the London Stock Exchange and tell the LSE to drop the Refinitiv deal it had already agreed, where it was turning itself Sorry. into a data provider. Um, but it was trying to, it said, do that instead. But LSE was very much set on the Refinitiv deal. And at the same time, one of the things that came up was you are a Hong Kong government-related entity Hong Kong exchange therefore you have Beijing influence therefore we don't want you in London this was one of the angles that came out of the whole thing so I think as a Hong Kong exchange they have to be aware that they have that link and it's going to make it easier for people to rebuff any M&A if they really don't want it Jen I, I just want to go back to the, the the point with you know, Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges. I mean, like you said, Hong Kong is definitely facing a lot of competition. And Pete, you've sort of looked a lot into, I guess, um, you know, like the financial reforms happening in China. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, an economy that's really bounced back, you know, from the pandemic, um, you know, and, and your prediction, you sort of, you know, look into you know, what's going to happen with, you know, China, particularly with, you know, what uh, tensions with the U.S. Can you just, you know, talk a bit about sort of how you see that dynamic playing out for next year? It's it's the sight of China um, surging back after the pandemic and having its stock markets heating up and exports exploding, you know, is not, I think, what, what a lot of its, the China hawks in, in the Trump administration wanted to see. They were talking about how these tariffs and everything going to put China on the ropes. And yeah, now, I mean, China it, is completely unfazed by the trade. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, China has over this year. It's been a weird year for trade, right? Um, you've had, you know, Chinese tourism spending overseas has evaporated. Um, that's technically an import. At the same time, like its dominance of the medical equipment industry has just been this huge advantage. I mean, just, a, and, and the quality of the recovery has been a little bit rocky in that there's been less demand for imports generally inside China. Um, the, the recovery and consumption has been slow, but the factories have gotten rolling and they've been able to sell quite quickly and, and they've been taking share, statistically at least. Um, IMF data, I think, shows that uh, China's share of global export trade uh, crossed 14% in July. Um, nobody's had a share that big since the U.S., I think back in the 80s. So and that trajectory is going up. You know, the trade surplus is monthly trade surplus, 75 billion in November. That's I think that's a highest on record. This this is all going to come rather uh, galling, you know, to those who thought they were going to contain China and bring it to heel. Do you um, think but, do you think in some sense that emboldens the China hawks to say we're not doing enough, we're not cracking down hard enough on China? Or do you think sort of the next administration, for example, will kind of look at the situation and say, this approach is just not working and we need something different? Well, that's a good question. You know, a lot of people are wondering whether there's going to be a big reset, you know, between Joe Biden 
and Xi Jinping. I doubt there's going to be much of one. I mean, it's it's easy enough for Biden to stop to not be Donald Trump, not be volatile, not make tweets that contradict your own policy advisors, um, you know, not constantly fire your, your spies, your, your diplomats, your military people, like just by not being Trump, Biden will be easier for China to deal with, I think, and just a bit more predictable. But apart from that, like Trump has gifted Biden a bunch of collateral, you know, all these mean things that, you know, the Trump administration has done to Chinese companies like, like Huawei, you know, the prosecution of Meng Wanzhou, um, the tariffs, all these things are things that that Biden can can trade now. He didn't he didn't do them, but he can swap them. And it's you know, it's going to be very difficult for him to swap them in exchange for nothing from Beijing. On the other hand, you know, Xi Jinping doesn't look like a guy who's who's ready to get really conciliatory. Maybe maybe he will muffle, you know, some of his more aggressive so-called wolf warrior diplomats like like Zhao Li, Li Jian at the at the foreign ministry who's out there tweeting um, fairly aggressive, mean things about American policy. Um, but I mean, in terms of like the changing the balance of policy, it's quite tough. But I mean, your question about like whether people conclude that the earlier approach is, is wrong or right is, is the critical one. Um, you know, what is obvious is that the trade war didn't, was hard to win, um, that whatever the intention was with the tariffs, they did not significantly erode the American deficit even allowing for, you know, the pandemic, which threw everything off. But I mean, the other thing is that the, the trade balance is, is sort of a structural thing, and it's not necessarily a problem. I mean, a lot of people disagree that the deficit is a problem at all. But one thing people have been quite nervous about has been Chinese outbound acquisitions. And that's an area where we might see a research too, keeping in mind that you know, the yen has been sort of overheating almost. It's been on this huge rally. And that positions Chinese companies to go out and start making deals. Now, I think a lot of people looked at like the pushback against Chinese acquisitions in Australia, you know, in Europe and the US and be like, well, it's over. But keeping in mind that there was also this pullback by Beijing, you know, based on worries about leverage, which is as important. But now Beijing is signaling we want we want to free up outbound investment channels. And so you could see a surge in outbound deals into like developing countries, you know, say Turkey. I think the yen has has rallied 30% against the lira. So there's lots of things they could do that would be even more irritating to the hawks. Okay. So, I mean, I guess that's a good point. I mean, sort of outbound acquisitions. Um, but what are the other, I guess, fault lines to watch out for for next year that you think, you know, will, you know, will be the ones to watch for between U.S. and China? I mean, if it's not trade, if it's not, you know, Huawei, um, you know, what would, what would what would be the next fault lines? The, the, the obviously black swan here is on the military front, which nobody wants to talk about, but these two militaries are quite close to each other. China will traditionally test an incoming administration. Um, here, Biden has a sort of advantage in that he's been to the show before under the Obama administration, but unfortunately, he's associated with Obama, who, who a lot of people thought China basically rolled over in terms of like, you know, the, the artificial islands built in the, in the South China Sea and so what. Also, uh, you know, there's a question about how Biden is going to deal with an environmental policy. Um, you know, we had some other columnists, Rahapat Nayak, uh, wrote a bit about whether that, you know, the, the Democratic Party being more focused on human rights, you know, might be more, even more bothered about these these camps in Xinjiang, the way that, yeah. that China is treating it. And its, also Hong Kong, too. Yeah. And Hong, yeah. the Hong Kong issue. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's one that's going to be on, like, what are they going to do to the Hong Kong banking system? You know, they've, they've, they've said they're going to sanction banks for that have worked with, you know, people who are responsible for the crackdown. 
you know, so do they sanction, you know, ISB, ICBC, which is the largest bank in the world by assets, you know, or do they just pick some little guy and, and uh, you know, some tiny Chinese bank and, and make them the, the, the whipping boy for, for it. Lots of questions. There's lots of areas of friction. The whole relationship is fundamentally fractious now, and it's going to stay that way. There's one point that I think we should raise. We're talking about China outbound and China trying to do more deals. One other bit is remember that China is courting a lot of American businesses in terms of, say, the banks and in opening up its finance sector. So at the same time, as we're still going to have tensions, east and west, for sure. And as I agree with you, Pete, they're not going to change massively, probably. But at the same time, you've got China saying to Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and Citi and to the European banks to come on in, get closer, do more business here, get more embedded. And it will just muddy the waters further. It's going to be very hard for those guys to step back if they do step forward and they are going full tilt, full tilt right now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that China has really been, been so focused on making sure Wall Street is happy, right? Um, I mean, other lines of business haven't really, you know, enjoyed the the policy um, friendliness that that China has granted. But clearly, Beijing realizes that it needs like a pro-China lobby of some sort, you know, in in Congress. And also, it's in its interests. I mean, like at this point. So I think we'll see more financial opening. I mean, I guess the question is, what happens to brands like Starbucks? You know, what happens to Ford? Um, those guys. Uh, you know, China wants to appear open to foreign investment, but you can see like the way it's played hardball with South Korea and Australia, you know, that is willing to to go quite far, you know, in, in punishing using economic uh, coercion for diplomatic means. So um, we'll see how that works out. Anyways, look, I think that was really interesting. I think we should start winding it up. I would encourage our listeners um, to look uh, look out for our Asia predictions coming out. We've got some other very interesting ones. And that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Robin and Jen for joining me. Kudos also to Freddie Joyner, uh, Sharon Lamb, and Katrina Hamlin for helping with production. Final thanks go to you, the listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to Views Room on Spotify or iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. And join us again next week for another episode.